That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 177, and it's titled, How Business Contributes to Income Inequality. Recording this episode in Japan. I'm in the Yamagata region, and I formed a recording studio out of tatami mats and futons. Been about four years since I've been to Japan. I first went seven years ago with my oldest son, and that's who's accompanying me on this trip. The biggest difference is he can speak Japanese now, whereas seven years ago, we were completely lost as we tried to navigate with really no language skills at all. In episode 72, it was, it was titled, Will a Robot Take Over Your Job? And I talked about how in Tokyo, at many commuter train net stops, there, there were white-gloved attendants who quietly motioned people with their hands not to fall off the edge of the platform. And I mentioned they're not there to increase productivity. It's a nicety. The Japanese have perfected the art of the personal transaction. They're very, very service-oriented. And so they have, or did have, platform workers that just kind of guided people. I didn't see that on this trip. On many of the stops, there were automated gates that would open and close, allowing the people to get onto the train. I did something different on this trip. We rented a car, and before we just always took the train, paid $90 to go 445 kilometers from Utsunomiya up to Obuke in northern Japan. It's about 20 cents a kilometer, 33 cents a mile, but very, very well-maintained roads and just beautiful scenery. And an example of something else that wasn't particularly productive, they have hedges on part of this toll road, this main highway that divides the, the, the two sides, but the hedges are trimmed into square boxes. They're just, somebody's after trimming. I didn't see anybody. Well, at the toll booths in the U.S. and, and many other countries, and including in Japan, they have some automated to, toll, toll booths. It's called ETC. You can just go through if you have a card. We didn't have a card, so we're going through toll booths. Some have changed. It's, it's just you put in your money and you go through with no individual there. But some still have attendants, and they're just so, so nice. Now, they say, hello, we have your ticket. Thank you very much. They explain exactly what they're doing as they process your ticket and say, here's your charge. Then they say, they take your card or your money. They count your change. But they very politely explain everything that's going on. And when they're done, they hand you your card or your change after they've counted it in front of you with two hands 
say, have a nice day and drive safely. But it's, it's not fast, but it's very, very polite. And the Japanese do a lot of things like that. When you get stopped for road construction, if there's a, a man or woman sort of with a flag, a flag person, they'll actually bow as a way to express their, their apology that, that we're being delayed. And yet at other stops, there isn't a flag person. There's a mannequin that automatically, a robot, that raises the, the, a fl- essentially waves a flag. More productive, not as nice. Dieter F. Uchtdorf, he's a member of the First Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, told the story of an elderly man who is standing in line at the post office to buy stamps at the counter. And a young woman noticed he just walked with, diff- with difficulty and wanted to show him how to buy stamps from a machine to save time. And the elderly gentleman said, Thank you, but I prefer waiting. The machine won't ask me about my arthritis. Amazon in the New York Times was an article described Nisa Scott, who works at an Amazon warehouse house, and her job was to stack plastic bins. It was really grueling work. These bins weighed 25 pounds each. She worked 10-hour shifts. She's 21 years old. Now, she babysits robots. These giant, bright yellow mechanical arms stack these bins, and she mines or monitors these robots to make sure they're doing their job. That's an example of a productivity increase. Some, a robot taking over a job where the worker is replaced but has a different job, and, and a more advanced job. That's what productivity is or productivity improvements. It's companies making investments in their business and in their workers so that they become more efficient at producing things and create new things, become innovative and creative. And then that helps the company better compete, become more efficient, more profitable. And then the workers get a share of those profits, as do the owners, if it's a private company, or the shareholders. That, that's capitalism. There's a problem with it now. It's not working the way it used to. Start with productivity. The IMF did a recent study that I'll link to in the show notes where they show that productivity is slowing. It's not improving as fast as it used to since the Great Recession. And why? What's changed? Well, they give a number of reasons. One is that the, the impact of the technology, communication, information systems, they had a huge impact in the productivity in the 90s and early 2000s, having less of an impact today. Another factor is workers. Workers are aging. And as they get old, their skills, if they don't invest in new skills and the, and the businesses aren't investing in their workers, then their skills start to degrade and the companies become less efficient. 
companies are investing less than they used to, both in terms of R&D as well as in their workers. They've changed their focus. And it shows up in lower productivity numbers. It shows up in income inequality. And it shows up in higher corporate profits. In March 2016, The Economist did an article report titled, Profits Are Too High. They write, profits have risen in most rich countries over the past 10 years, but the increase has been biggest for American firms. Coupled with an increasing concentration of ownership, this means the fruits of economic growth are being hoarded. Profits are an essential part of capitalism. They give investors a return, encourage innovation, and signal where resources should be invested. Their accumulation allows investments in bold new ventures. That's what we've talked about. The profits reinvested in the company to invest it in their employees, their workers to inspire creativity, innovation, invested in R&D. Economist goes on, but high profits across the whole economy can be a sign of sickness. It can signal the existence of firms more adept at siphoning wealth off than creating it afresh, such as those that exploit monopolies. If companies capture more profits than they can spend, it can lead to a shortfall in demand. How does that happen? Well, if they're not reinvesting it, cash balances just start climbing and get higher and higher. And we have that trillions of dollars held by corporations, not invested, often held overseas to avoid paying taxes, just sitting there, not reinvested. The Economist continues, high profits can deepen inequality in various ways. The pool of income to be split among employees could be squeezed. Workers are fighting over a smaller and smaller pie in terms of their income. And consumers might pay too much for goods. In a market the size of America, America's, prices should be lower than in other industrialized economies. By and large, they are not. Though American companies now make a fifth of their profits abroad, their naughty secret is their return on equity is 40% higher at home. There should be business dynamism where if there's an opportunity and too high a profit that another business can come in and take over and take advantage. And you're not seeing that oftentimes. The profit can be too high. Falls in the share of output going to workers over the past decade is equivalent to about 60%, 60% of the rise of domestic pre-tax profits. Profits are rising because workers are getting less. And shareholders and company senior management is getting more. Why is that? The Economist talks about technology is replacing workers with machines and software. That's a good thing. That's normal. That's automation. That's productivity improvements. But if the spoils of those improvements aren't going to workers, 
and it's just falling falling to the bottom line, then then that contributes to income inequality. Certainly, globalization has had an impact as manufacturing moves overseas to where workers are paid less. Declines in trade union membership has an impact where employer or employees have less clout inability to negotiate fair wages. But The Economist says none of these accounts, though, for the most troubling aspect of America's profit problem. It's persistence. Business theory holds that firms can at best enjoy only temporary periods of competitive advantage during which they can rake in cash. After that, new companies inspired by these rich pickings will pile in to compete away those fat margins, bringing down prices, increasing both employment and investment. It's the mechanism behind Adam Smith's Invisible Hand in in his book, The Wealth of Nations, written hundreds of years ago. In America, that hand seems oddly idle, writes The Economist. An American firm that was very profitable in 2003, one with post-tax returns on capital of 15 to 20%, had an 83% chance of still being very profitable in 2013. That's a study done by McKinsey. But it is the way that they stay profitable that isn't sustainable. In 2014, William Lazonic published a piece in Harvard Business Review called Profits Without Prosperity. And he talked about from the end of World War II into the late 1970s, Corporations did retain and reinvestment. That was their approach to resource allocation. They they had retained earnings, and then they reinvested those earnings in increasing their capabilities and becoming more competitive by rewarding and investing in their employees. They provided workers with higher incomes and greater job security. That is sustainable prosperity because the workers then could go out and buy stuff and afford to do so. He goes on and talks about the pattern broke down in the late 70s, giving way to what he calls downside and distribute regime. A regime of reducing cost and then distributing the freed up cash to financial interest, particularly the shareholders. And that's what you're seeing. Stock buybacks. He reports that from 2003 to 2012, during a period where companies use 54% of their earnings, $2.4 trillion to buy back their own stock, and another 37% of their earnings for dividends. So 54% to buy back stock, 37% for dividends, leaving, what, 9% to reinvest in R&D and wait in increasing their, their investment in their employees. That isn't sustainable. Before I continue, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Another way that businesses contribute to income inequality is the pay, the compensation of CEOs. From 1978 to 2015, U.S. CEO compensation increased 940% versus 543% for the S&P 500. In other words, the, the, the increase is according to Fortune. They're increasing the pay of CEOs faster than the stock market is increasing. And the idea is they do that because to provide incentives for the CEO to boost their stock price. But they're actually getting paid more than the stock price is increasing. In 1965, according to payscale.com, this is a study they did, the CEO to worker compensation ratio in the U.S. was 20 to 1. So the, the CEO made 20 times what the median worker. And that was according to the Economic Policy Institute. The payscale.com study looked at it. What is it today? 70 to 1. So the typical average CEO is making 70 times what the median worker is making versus 20 times back in 1965. Some of them are making 300 times more their median worker. That contributes to income inequality. Now, that's the idea. Well, we talked about this last week. We have to reward the shareholders. The shareholders are the owners. We get to maximize shareholder wealth. Peter Georgescu in Capitalists Arise point out, points out in his book, part of the justification for this philosophy, paying CEO more is increasing profits, is that shareholders are viewed as the equivalent of owners in a private company. The prevailing myth is that shareholders own the corporation. Lynn Stout, a Cornell Law School professor, pointed out 
this isn't legally the case. She writes, shareholders don't legally own a company. They simply own shares of stock. The corporation itself owns its assets. The shareholders have rights, but so do other stakeholders. If the shareholders were the true owners, they would be liable in the court of law for a corporation's mistakes and crimes. And they're not. They have limited liability. There are other stakeholders. We talked a little bit about that last week. In September 1982, Peter Georgescu was in a meeting. He was a young analyst at Young and Rubicam. He was there with his CEO in this meeting at Johnson & Johnson's headquarters. They were represented by their CEO, Jim Burke, and other senior management. Why were they there? That was the month that Tylenol, a number of bottles of Tylenol, had been poisoned by potassium cyanide, and there were deaths. And Johnson & Johnson needed to decide, what do we do? Jim Burke opened his desk and pulled out a piece of paper. It's the company's mission statement. And it starts... With, we believe our first responsibility is to the doctors, nurses, and patients, to mothers and fathers, and all others who use our products and services. That's about high quality. That's their first responsibility, their first stakeholder. He went on, we are responsible to our employees, the men and women who work with us throughout the world. We are responsible to the communities in which we live and work and to the world community as well. And our final responsibility, just one of them, our final is to our stockholders. Businesses must make a sound profit. We must experiment with new ideas. Research much must be carried on. Innovative programs developed and mistakes paid for. New equipment must be purchased. New facilities provided. And new products launched. Reserves must be created to provide for adverse times. When we operate according to these principles, the stockholder should realize a fair return. Notice there were multiple stakeholders. Their customers, the community, their employers, and the shareholders. But there needs to be investment in their workers and in R&D so that long-term profits can be there, so that workers have the resources collectively around the community to buy the products. If the profits are going more and more to the wealthiest decile in the U.S., and the lower deciles are not making, they're just not getting the income they need they're not. You look at the 2016 Consumer Expenditure Survey. Half the country has negative cash flow. They're spending more than they're receiving in income. And we talked about this a little bit last week. We're looking at what percent is insolvent. What percent has debts greater than their assets? Georgescu said it was 40 to 60%. At the end, that episode, I said it was 25%. Listener George pointed out, that's, I don't even think it's that. Because I was referencing a Congressional Budget Office study 
And he's right. I said it was 25% because the study said the average wealth of the 25th percentile and below is negative, that they are insolvent. That's the average of that quartile. If you look at the numbers, it's 12% are insolvent, have assets worth less than their debts. But half is actually running negative cash flow. You look at that consumer expenditure survey, and you and they and this is a survey, so they, they're reporting it. They're reporting their after-tax income, and they're reporting what they spent and what they spent it on. And half are reporting spending more than they're taking in an income. And I and I, how can that be? Well, you read the the footnotes. And the, the Census Bureau that puts the study together, they answer it. Consumer units, people, households, can experience spells of unemployment. So they may draw upon their savings to become unemployed. Self-employed consumers might experience business losses. You're retired, you're pulling from your savings, so you could spend more. Or if you're a student, you're getting by with loans. So there's flux in these deciles. Sometimes you go through periods of unemployment and you get a job, but it shouldn't be half. And I compared this to 1972. I pulled out, well, where, what is it there? 1972, seven out of 10 deciles were making more in income than they were expending. Three deciles weren't. But the third decile, the shortfall was only about $400. That's today is roughly in inflation adjusted about $2,300. So in today's dollars, the third decile was spending $2,300 more than they were taking in in income. Today, that third decile, lowest decile, is running an $8,800 shortfall in 2016 dollars. So income inequality is real. The fact that more and more of the spoils are falling to the bottom line in terms of profits and being used to buy back shares and not invested in workers and employees, that shows up in the numbers. It shows up in shortfalls. It shows up in income inequality. From 1979 to 2013, average tax income grew at significantly different rates. Households in the top 1% this, again, is a CBO study. I'll link to it in the show notes. Had 192% higher inflation-adjusted after-tax income in 2013 than they did in 1979. 192%. 3% increase per year. The Those in the bottom quintile only increased 46%. So about 1% a year. The top 20% in the U.S. gets over 50% of household pre-tax income. The top 1% gets close to 10%. The bottom 20% only gets about 5%. We have income inequality. And businesses contribute to it because they're not. They're no longer taking their earnings and reinvesting it in the employees. They're buying back their stock. They're rewarding their CEOs. They're not investing in R&D. And ultimately, 
It's not sustainable. can only cut costs so much. You can only buy so much stock back. At some point, you need customers to buy your products. And if your customers are running ongoing negative cash flow, they're spending more than they're taking in an income, increasing their debt loads, they're not going to be able to keep buying. Now, there's a reason why businesses do that. Business is hard. It's very, very competitive. We have a surplus of stuff. It's so easy now to make things, to make anything. And so if you're going to invest in your workers and in innovation, R&D, you got to create something new that people want to buy. It's hard to know what people want to buy. It's very, very competitive. You can't compete on price. We have all of these websites to figure out who's got the cheapest price to race to the bottom. It's those that have something new and different. It can be a differentiated experience. The niceties like we see in Japan that people are willing to pay for. But business is hard. It's easier to cut cost. It's easier to buy back stock. And it's work. Profits are up. The stock market has done very, very well. And if CEOs don't perform in that way, that's what their incentives are in terms of their compensation, then you have activist shareholders, hedge funds demanding that they make those changes. It's such a short-term focus. But Georgescu writes, if inequality is not addressed, the income gap will most likely be resolved in one of two ways. By major social unrest or through oppressive taxes. We don't want that. I'd rather see businesses invest in their workers and their employees and in R&D. That's what's sustainable, even if it is hard and difficult. But that is what will allow for capitalism to continue because it can't continue in its current form. I recently saw a promotion for Walmart. They said, we're investing $2.7 billion in training, education, and higher wages because it's our humanity that drives our creativities, powers our competitive spirit, and keeps us out in front. If Walmart can do it, other businesses could do it. And I don't know the extent Walmart has, but the, I mean, at least they're recognizing it. The importance of investing in their workers, the importance of R&D. Because that is, it's what drives our creativity. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, go ahead and sign up for my insider's guide. I'll send you those show notes weekly. It's free send you a, a weekly essay that some of the best writing I write each week, not published anywhere else, just goes to those members. Insider's Guide, free. Go ahead, sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can text the word insider to the number 44222. Everything I've shared with you in this episode is just general education. I don't give investment advice here. This is about economy. We're talking about money, investing, Hope you have a great week. We'll be in Japan a few more days next week back in Idaho. Bye.